We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hi there, hockey fans, and welcome back to Rotowire's signature NHL Hockey Pod podcast with Statsman AJ. Friends, I'm Paul Bruno in Toronto, Ontario, and you can follow me at Statsman22. My co-host is AJ Scholes, a great follow at AJ Scholes24, based in Sun Prairie, Wisconsin, near Rotowire headquarters over in Madison. Finally, we get to the playoffs. There were some naysayers when the season began, but here we are on the eve of the 2021 postseason, and I know two people that couldn't be more excited. On today's show, <laughs> on today's show, we'll break down the eight series, looking at the way teams match up against one another, and giving our predictions along the way with the usual roster information that we provided throughout the regular season. AJ, welcome to the 2021 playoffs. Did you think we would get there the way we did? Well, I definitely thought we'd get there one way or another. Um, I'm a little surprised uh, that, you know, we're playing playoff games while a couple of teams that aren't in it are going to be finishing off the series. We talked off air. Those those Vancouver Calgary games will have to have the lowest rating of any hockey game, I think, in, in the history of the, the NBC contract. Um, you know, I just or, or uh, you know, TSN up, up that way. But I just don't see a lot of people watching those uh, those games. But for the rest of us, uh, I, I doubt people in Calgary or, or Vancouver are going to watch those games. I'm being <laughs> totally honest. Um, I guess that's a question for you, Paul. Are you watching your the Leafs tonight in that game, or, or are you just going to wait until the postseason? 
I never miss a Leaf hockey game, but this is going to look like an <laughs> this is going to look like an exhibition game, and it's the only game on the sked tonight. So we're not going to bother with a DFS segment because we will probably not know the lineups until much closer to faceoff. So apologies to those of you who are tuning in, hoping for that information. But I hope you stick around because we're going to have some fun breaking down the series and. Uh, I wonder how in sync we are in terms of the picks that we're making and any upsets that we may call. And uh, the format that we usually use is to knock around the forward combinations and the defense and goalies. We're going to have an eye on the special teams as well. But I'm curious to know what my partner thinks about some of the matchup situations and who are the key guys that each team will be really focusing on. And uh, with that, we'll open up the look with the Carolina versus Nashville series. The Canes won the season series six games to two on the season and uh, AJ I I think Carolina is one of the best teams in hockey that's no surprise and you probably won't argue that but Nashville could be a pesky unit too uh break down the forward depth charts for me and see what tell me what you think about uh, the matchups that we might forecast there well I think the biggest thing to start you know we will talk about some injury uh issues you know Victor Arvidsson I think is the key for Nashville to give them anything that resembles uh, a top six. You know, you look at their lineup right now, you've got Rem Pitlick uh, on the left wing and Rocco Grimaldi on the right wing. These are quality bottom six contributors, but they're certainly not guys you want playing in the top six. So getting Victor Arvidsson back, whether he takes the, the first line spot and bumps Eli Tolvanen down or takes the second line spot, I think it's the key for Nashville to give them a little bit more of, of an option. Obviously, Kali Yarncroft would factor in on the left-hand side. All indications are he'll play. He was out as, as a healthy scratch. So there shouldn't be any concerns there of him replacing Pitlick on the second line. But even after that, the depth just isn't here for me. When you look at the other side of the ice, you've got a Carolina team that, uh, you know, they have, I, I give them the better first line in, in Niederreiter, Ajo, Teravainen. It depends which line you want to call the second one. I'm going to call it the Svechnikov, Stahl, Jasper, Fast as the second line. I think that's better than the second line on the other side. And then that gives them the opportunity to have Vinny Trocek anchor a third line. Looks like Warren Fogel, Martin Neckash will be the guys with him. But again, I don't, I don't think it really matters. In Nashville, you know, everything comes down to Victor Arvison and whether or not he's going to be healthy for the start of this series. Uh, if he is, he at least gives the Predators a decent, you know, second line option here, uh, a top six that has some sort of uh, scoring opportunities here. Kali Yarncroft is expected to be back on the left wing, so that at least gives them Yarncroft and Duchesne. But if no, if no Victor Arvison, then you've got Rocco Grimaldi, who's a quality bottom six guy, but he's not a, a second line winger by any stretch of the imagination. So getting Arvison back, whether he takes the first line spot and pushes Eli Tolvanen down, or he fits in on the second line, uh, it at least gives them a, a two line uh, option here. But after that, or even before that, with that Carolina is just outclassed here. They have the better first line and need a rider Aho and uh, Tuvo Teravainen, those guys are the best line in, in this group. The second line, which I actually think is the group that we have listed as the third in Andrei Svechnikov, Jordan Stahl, and Jasper Fass, will outclass the second line for Nashville. And that would give the, uh, the Hurricanes uh, the opportunity to have a third line anchored by Vinny Trocek, 
possibly even getting Cedric Paquette back in. Although if they go with Warren Fogel, I don't think there's a huge drop off there. Martin Neckash on the other side, there's just way too much depth for these Carolina Hurricanes. And they are simply just going to steamroll Nashville, uh, you know, in terms of the forward complement here. I think they're just unmatched. Yeah, AJ, from my point of view, the, the big discrepancy begins at the center position. Sebastian Ajo has had a fantastic season offensively. Vinny Trocek, I've talked about him all year long, as a very capable playmaking center uh, in, and really properly slotted in a number two hole there. It's, it's a, uh, a gap that was filled in very admirably by this guy, and it was a problem for Carolina until he came on board. And then that allows them to put Jordan Stahl in the three spot. There is some doubt about his health at the moment, but I expect him to be okay for the series, and he's going to get the checking line role against Nashville. And uh, the question for me, though, is who, do the, who does Carolina worry about offensively on the other side of things? Uh, uh, number two, one, two center positions, we've been maligning them. Duchesne and Johansson have been really underwhelming all year long, and the totals in the scoring uh, for Nashville really reflect that. The top scoring forward is Callie Yarncroft with 13 on the season, and uh, that's a far cry with, with from the leadership on Carolina, where Sebastian Aho had, had 24. He led the squad with 57 points, and Nashville's leader was, was actually a defenseman, Roman Yossi, with 33 points. So that tells you, in a nutshell, the big discrepancy offensively between these two clubs. And I think you highlighted very well the the depth of Carolina, much more significant than than Nashville. For the Preds' point of view, I think they've got to hope that uh, some people come up and, and shut down the uh, offense on the other side. And I think you're looking at guys like Michael Grandlin and Eric Halla maybe charge more than Duchesne and Johansson to try and mitigate the, the depth on the defense on the other side. Nashville's strength is on the wings for me. Philip Forsberg, really one of the top offensive pieces here that they can trot forward and uh, along with him to- Eli Tolvin has had a very nice year but boy the depth does fall off you're, you're right to highlight Victor Arvidsson as a real key here offensively for Nashville they need all hands going but they got to find a way to silence the two pivots on the other side and and I think that's the key to have them having any kind of a chance in this series I think it gets a little closer when you think about Nashville on the blue line AJ I think this is maybe the one area where we might even concede that they may have uh, make let's call it even at at best in terms of the matchup on the uh, on the defensive side of the puck Roman Yossi as I said was the leading scorer offensively for for this club all season long but he's also one of the best defensemen in hockey Ryan Ellis is underwhelmed underrated rather as a uh, two-way specialist uh, providing offense and eating up a lot of minutes I love those two guys uh, playing almost half the games in each of these playoff sets I think that they're going to be really the workhorses here Matthias Ekholm maybe the third guy in that regard but then it falls off a little bit for me Eric Goodbranson Matt Benning they're, they're experienced guys, depth players. Dante Fabro could be a wild card here as well for Nashville. And on the flip side, Carolina, we know that they have a very good depth on the blue line as well. Uh, for me, Dougie Hamilton needs to be healthy. He has had a bit of a uh, regression in terms of the total stats, but still a fine season with 42 points on the year. And he was rested in the final game of the season. There's there's no need to worry about his status if you're concerned that, oh, you didn't see him in the lineup. He's fine to go. 
Brady Shea uh, took a step backwards. So did Jake Gardner. Brett Pesci uh, kind of did too. So uh, Jacob Slavin is a guy that, along with Dougie Hamilton, you can really count on to play the game at both ends with with some skill offensively too. Uh, he came on in the late, later part of the season offensively after being really quiet for the most part. But um, the more I look at it, and I, I'm also, I might also almost say that Nashville gets a slight edge in terms of rating the, the defense cores of both teams here. Agree or disagree? I'm, I'm going to disagree, Paul, and, and I think part of it has to do with your uh, pure hatred for all things Jake Gardner. Um, <laughs> I don't think you would rate any defensive group that had Jake Gardner in it. So uh, that's right here. But no, one, one caveat I'll put on that is Brett Pesci. Yeah, maybe you know you said a bit, but his 25 points would actually be the second most uh, points on among defensemen on Nashville because he actually outscored Matthias Ekholm, who had 23. Uh, and then we talked, obviously, Dougie Hamilton significantly outscored Roman Yossi, who led the entire team in, in, in points. So I, I think this, there's this perception there that Carolina has the one star in Dougie Hamilton and then everybody else kind of chips in a little bit here and there. And, and that's somewhat true. But Brett Pesci actually had a, a better season um, than, than I think a lot of people want to give him credit for on, on the offensive side of the ice. Between the nets here, uh, you know, there's a, a bit of certainty on one side and uncertainty on the other. Nashville has very clearly moved on to UC Saros for, for the rest of the season, and, and rightly so. He's had a, a solid year for them, uh, you know, 21 wins. 11 losses, one, one overtime defeat, three shutouts. That's a career high in terms of wins for him. It's a career low in, in, uh, in goals against average at, point, uh, at 2.28. So really uh, a solid season from him. I think there's no question that he's their starter. Having a guy like Pekka Rene to back him up if needed is certainly a luxury for them to have. In Carolina, the decision becomes significantly murkier only because the guys have been too good. It's, it's, it's too much of a good thing almost here. You've got, uh, you know, you've obviously got a third guy. I think he's absolutely the third wheel, but James Reimer, decent season, 15, 5, and 2, a .906 save percentage. Peter Morazic, injuries limited him to just 12 games in which he went 6, 2, and 3, a .923 save percentage. And then the best netminder they had on the year overall is Alex Nedeljkovic, 15-5-3, very similar win-loss record to James Reimer, but a .932 save percentage, the best of all three guys here. I, I think Morazic gets the start here, but uh, I, I would not be shocked if, uh, you know, if Ryan maybe against convention and started the rookie uh, Nadelkovich just to get him uh, in there because his numbers have games and the other three guys now at this point. And I really think he should be the starter here. Yeah, I'm looking at Nashville, though, and, and I think the biggest hope that fans have to have is that UC Saros plays lights out, AJ. This guy needs to be uh, at the very top of his game. And he had an outstanding season. 2.28 is the goals against average. 9.27 the save percentage. Those are outstanding numbers. And and uh, they're in the same class as Morazic and Nedeljkovic. But those guys played significantly less time. Nedeljkovic leading uh, all goalies there with 23 appearances. I do think if healthy, 
Peter Morazic is the guy they're going to go to just because of the experience factor. But they may be one of those teams that if they go on a long run, you'll see a lot of both of these guys. And that might be a new trend that we see in this postseason, AJ, particularly with some of the the games being so close, closely clustered. And the fact is, most teams are switching away from that one top goalie. So don't be afraid if, if you're in playoff pools and you think Carolina is going to go all the way. This might be a situation where you handcuff the goalie picks and take both of these guys, maybe one early and one later on. If you're drafting in the postseason, it's a strategy that we should see play out in more pools than ever before uh, with the nature of this playoff that we're headed for. All right, partner, let's let's put our uh, thoughts together on, on these teams. I'll give you a minute to collect your thoughts on uh, the Carolina matchup against Nashville and your call. We might highlight those special teams as well. Carolina special teams far outclassing Nashville with 85.2% success on the PK, 25 on the power play. You know, Scotty Bowman once said, if the sum of those two numbers is over 100, you got a good shot with, with your special teams to be a factor. On the other side of it, Nashville falls out short of that 100 plateau with 75.4, PK 17.6 on the on the power play. So, Partner, what's your sense of the call in this series, Carolina over Nashville or Nashville over Carolina? Well, I think it's going to be quick and and dirty here in in this series. Carolina in four is my prediction. Look, they're twenty three and five at home, so they'll get games one and two. Maybe Nashville uh, snags one at, at home and, and extends it to five, but I just don't see it. I think they're completely outclassed in this matchup. So I will go with Carolina in four for the sweep. Well, I'm, I'm, it's hard to get a sweep, obviously, and I'm going to play it a little safer. I'm going to say Carolina in five. I'm going to say that uh, the Nashville goaltender, Saros, gets the first star in one of the games at home and steals one. But I think, like you, uh, indications are that this could be a very short, short series. Carolina, uh, I was surprised to see them at the top of the standings early on, but they held held uh, serve all season, if you will, and uh, they look like a juggernaut headed into the postseason, and uh, this will not be an area where they stumble, I don't think. Up next, we got the Florida Panthers and the Tampa Lightning, AJ, and of course, it's a division rivalry like almost no other with the way it gets heated between these two teams and with the talent at the high end of both rosters shining through. I think this could be a real showcase. I think there's a lot of eyeballs on what Tampa did. We should talk about that for a minute, too, the way they held Stamkos out of the lineup and uh, they held Kucherov out all season long. Uh, it's it caused a lot of uh, furrowed eyebrows at the NHL head offices, and I don't know if we'll see that kind of cap manipulation. The two guys figure to be back in the lineup offensively, and that gives the, the, the Tampa team a tremendous look up front. Can you walk us through your view of the forward matchups in that series? Absolutely. So, you know, the, the thing I'll mention, Paul, is that the guys obviously had to be injured, right, to be put on LTIR. Like, maybe could have – Kudrov played a game or two in the regular season, maybe. But I don't think they're keeping a guy like that out weeks if he was healthy and available to go just to just to manipulate the cap. So I – I, I'm not quite as, as sure that there's some some shenanigans going on here as, as you seem to indicate there. But overall, uh, I think that's the that's a big question. What what are we getting out of Nikita Kucherov? This guy hasn't played in a year. Um, you know, is he going to be able to step right in? They had him lined up uh, on the first line with Braden Point and Andre Palat. 
they had him on the first power play unit at, at practices. So all, all indications are he's going to step right in there. I think it's important to note, you know, yeah, he hasn't played in a year, but prior in the five seasons prior to this season, he had the the third most points in the league over that stretch of time. This is an elite, elite player who is capable of racking up goals and points, especially on the power play. Uh, he led the league over that stretch of time in power play points with 166. So uh, I really think you're looking at a guy who uh, is almost unclass- unmatched in this in the league uh, when he's healthy and available. What we get out of him remains to be seen. But I think even if you're getting 75% of Nikita Kucherov, that's going to be hard to match up with. And I think overall, Florida does have a solid top line in Carter Verhege, Alexander Barkov, and Anthony Duclair. But if, uh, if Kucherov is playing the way we generally expect him to, I certainly give the edge uh, uh, to Tampa on that one. You look at the second-line <clears throat> second combinations, Jonathan Huberdeau, Maybe Sam Bennett if he's healthy. And then Owen Tippett, again, I think, you know, Stamkos has been out for a month, but I think you still have to look at that line having the edge when you consider Killorn, Sorelli, and Stamkos. So really for me, the top six uh, favors the Lightning, barring any, you know, significant drop-off from these guys. I think from there, it's evenly classed for, for the bottom six. Maybe you give a slight edge to the Florida third line who has, uh, Patrick Hornquist, Alex Weinberg, uh, two very experienced guys, and then Frank uh, Vetrano as well. So overall, the top six for me is better in Tampa, maybe a little bit deeper in Florida outside of that, but I'm just not sure that it's going to matter there. I think overall, the Lightning win, the, the, the matchup, if you will, among the forwards. Paul, do you see it the same there? I kind of see it a little more even, uh, AJ, but I've got a question that arises out of the analysis here. Uh, when you let's throw Carolina into this mix, one of these teams is obviously going to be emerging. One of the, I, I don't think we give Nashville much a chance of emerging from the division, but it leads me to a playoff strategy question for you, and that is when you are getting ready for a playoff pool, are, what's your strategy? Are you highlighting two or three teams to, to load up on? And if so, uh, it's kind of an all eggs in one basket kind of approach, or are you kind of kind of pick a player from about eight or nine different teams. I tend to look at, from my point of view, four teams that I think are going to emerge at least to the third round. So you've got to get it right. It's, it's either uh, go big or go home for me. And, and when I look at this series, I, I look at a whole mitt full of guys on both rosters that you can load up offensively. So before I get into my analysis of the forwards, I'd love to get your slant on the strategy. Well, here's the thing. The, the, uh, the playoff pool is about winning the pool, right? Like when you're, I, I'll bring kind of a DFS approach to this. When you're playing a big tournament GPP, you got to pick the guys that are going to win, maybe be less, have lower drafted percentages to try and get towards the top because less people get money, right? In, in a GPP. So you have to be at the top. So you have to take more risk. You have to maybe stack a, a couple teams. If you're playing in a cash game, Then you can spread out your lineup more, get guys with kind of low ceilings because you just have to finish in the top half, right, to really get uh, your money. The playoff pool is more like a tournament. I don't know. I mean, maybe you're in some, Paul, but I don't know any playoff pool that I've been in that awards money for the top half. you got to be one, maybe two. If you're in a really deep pool, maybe you could finish third to get some money here. But so you, in order to win on top, 
you got to stack a bunch of guys that are going to play long into the tournament and rack up a bunch of points. So for me, I take the same approach as you do, Paul. I would rather pick those guys and end up in the bottom of the standings of a pool with the potential to finish on top than to finish somewhere in the middle. And I can be like, Oh, well, I wasn't in last. Uh, I also still lost my money the same way the guy in last did. So I just, to me, they're much more GPP type focus tournament type focus. So I'm going to stack a handful of teams, maybe toss in a few wild cards in there on teams that, you know, are maybe, uh, underdogs to get past and then if they do you you have this kind of bonus player too but that's my general approach Paul. and so with that said i'm looking at the depth and the scoring on florida first of all and i'm looking at a guy like patrick hornquist power play specialist he picked up eight of his 14 goals on the pp so he'd be a guy that i would look at if i'm thinking that Florida will be the team that emerges from from this series and maybe this division even as a guy to target in the mid middle rounds i might lower my ratings on a guy like an Anthony Duclair or a Carter Verhage. They had fine offensive seasons, but they weren't very productive on the power play, each totaling two points apiece. So that's just one tip in terms of what I'm looking for there. On the flip side with Tampa, I love the year that Andre Palat had, and he might not be a guy that you think about when you think about the big guns that are coming in from the sidelines with uh, injury status that we mentioned off the top, but Braden Point also rates above him. And uh, then, so so Palat, I think, is a real strong value play. Had an outstanding year on the special teams as well. I don't think you name him with the top guns on Tampa when you start thinking about them automatically. And I put Alex Killorn in that same class. So my question to you was leading into my analysis of the depth players on the offense of these teams. And I think there's some value to pick on both sides. I think there's more on the Tampa side of things. And so that's where I might say Tampa has a slight edge in terms of the ratings between the two offenses. How about the blue lines, partner? What do you see there? Well, I think in, in this case, again, you know, uh, there's just not like Florida as a six pack might be a little bit deeper overall than Tampa, but they don't have the star power by any stretch of the imagination. And part of that is because they don't have Aaron Ekblad. Um, you know, they brought in Brandon Montour. He's been pretty decent. Um, but, you know, Tampa is going to roll out Victor Hedman, uh, who obviously will quarterback that that power play. Uh, that is, you know, not to steal your thunder here, Paul, but is converting at 22.4%. He's going to quarterback that. You've got Mikhail Sergachev, who adds offensive um, contributions generally with the second unit. So I, I think maybe you could say, like, as a whole, um, you know, Florida's group is is generally uh, maybe a little bit deeper, their, their third line. Uh, but even that, you know, when you start looking at it, like, would I rather have a – you know, Keith, Keith Yandel and Radko Gudis versus uh, Ryan McDonough and Eric Cernak, like I might take McDonough and Cernak instead. So um, it's, it's, it's close in general in terms of depth. And then Edmund just gives them the edge with, with his sheer offensive will and star power. Yeah, he's got the injury issues though the, that he that dogged him all season long. So uh, take him with uh, with some caution, I guess. He's still one of the odds-on to be the, the 
top defenseman on the season that he's had, but uh, he's been dogged by injury, so there is a little bit of a, a question mark there for me, just a tiny one. But uh, on the Florida side, I want to highlight Mackenzie Weger because when you're thinking about the Florida offense from the back end, certainly you're concerned about the fact that Ekblad's missing, but Yandel is a guy that we've counted on for years here to be carrying the mail, but it was Mackenzie Weger who far outpaced all Florida defensemen with the season that he had. And I think he could be a sneaky good pick in in a draft if you think Florida is going to advance. Rate him above Yandel because he's the guy that uh, is the top point getter back there. And he had a fantastic run in the second half of the season. Worth pointing out there. On the Tampa side, I know Hedman is a guy that's going to get a lot of the accolades offensively. But I think Mikhail Sergachev had a, a, another step of growth in his development as a young defenseman who's going to be among the leading scorers offensively for years to come and this could be a coming out party for him in the playoffs he had a 30 point regular season which is nothing to sneeze at in the 56 game schedule trailing Hedman by 15 points just to remind you of the gap there but beyond those two it drops down into the teens so that's where you're going to look at uh, the scoring from the back end is the top two guys if uh, you're going to be looking at uh, the top end of the defenseman scoring here for for these two clubs. In the goalie mix, it's clear that Tampa has the edge when you think about Vasilevsky and the Nets had an outstanding campaign again. You look at the offense, the numbers that uh, he put up all told, 31 wins, 10 losses, only a 221 goals against and a save percentage over 92.5. So outstanding numbers. On the flip side, Florida's got a, a real decision here in terms of do they run with, with Bobrovsky all the way through AJ? He had the highest goals against anybody on that team in the Nets. Spencer Knight came on late in the season. We talked about this a few days ago in the, in our part one of this uh, this forecasting. Uh, Chris Dreger looks to be the odd man out, despite the fact that he had the best numbers among the three goalies. So uh, I think clearly Tampa has the the class of, the, of this matchup in, in the Nets. But what do you see Florida doing in goal? Well, I, I mean, I don't know how you get away from putting Sergei Borovsky in for them. I, I just, at least for game one, right? Like, I, I think you have to. I, you know, it would be the boldest, probably coaching decision of maybe recent history, if not all time, to put a guy like Spencer Knight, who's played four NHL games in between the pipes for game one. Um, but maybe it's one of those situations. He's so young and untested. You don't know what you don't know um, <laughs> when you get out there. So I, I agree. I think Dreger's the odd man out here. You mentioned he has the best numbers of the three, but I just don't see how you either have to go with Bob, your $10 million man, or if you're going to sit Bobrowski, it has to be for Spencer Knight. There's no question about it in my opinion here. AJ, your call in the series will will be coming shortly. Just to run the special team numbers to our audience, Florida had a 79.8% kill rate on the PK. They were 20.5, 20.5 on the power play. Tampa, 80, 84.2 and 22.4 respectively. So I give the nod on the special teams to Tampa in this case. And uh, it brings me to your call on the series, partner. I think... This is going to be a rivalry that the Florida fans were going to, are going to enjoy in the postseason. Finally, first time we've seen it in a while. And uh, I think it's going to be a close one. Uh, what do you say? Well, I'm, I'm certainly not expecting it to be a, a sweep here. But, you know, you mentioned those power play numbers for the Lightning. 22.4, that's without Kucherov all season. 
That's without Stamkos for the last month. I think you add those two guys in, uh, and and that number could go up, which is crazy to even think about here. Uh, I I think Florida will make a series of it, but I expect it to round out in six. Uh, I don't the full distance. Uh, the Lightning in six is my call. I'm saying it's going to go seven, and wouldn't it be something if it went seventh game overtime? That's how close these teams match up for me, and uh, I, I think that Carolina's got to be relishing this situation because we do expect them to dispatch their opponents from Nashville very quickly, so a long series here is something that, that the Canes would love to see, and I'm going to love to see it. I'm saying it's a coin flip, but I'm taking Tampa on the basis of their higher-octane offense coming through the rested players, Stamkos and Kucherov, playing a key factor, and the decisive nature of the disparity in goal, another factor in my call. Now we come to a series that your, your peepers are going to be glued on very intensely, I'm sure, AJ. Pittsburgh versus the Islanders. And uh, the Pens won the season series two, six, six to two overall. Two of these games did go to extra time, though, so it's a little bit tighter than that than that 6-2 and two record shows. Uh, I'm going to let you lead off and break down the forward matchup here and uh, try not to get too excited and give me a chance to talk in a little bit. <laughs> no, I, I'll start with the Islanders to maybe, uh, you know, avoid uh, going too long on the Penguins here. But, look, the fact of the matter is they have not replaced Anders Lee. Like, losing Anders Lee has been the biggest uh, problem for this team uh, ever since he got hurt. They tried it by bringing in Kyle Palmieri and Travis Zajac from uh, the Devils. Zajac is now dealing with an injury. Palmieri uh, hasn't really gelled well. Neither of these guys, to be perfectly blunt, they haven't scored uh, much in the way of points. I think Palmieri has eight and Zajac has four just off the top of my head. I, I don't have it in front of me, but um, it's not a lot. They're trying Leo Komarov on the top line with Matthew Barzell and Jordan Everly. It's worked a little, but I don't expect that to carry forward. The, the second line is where this team, in my opinion, uh, could make some waves, and that's Anthony Bolivier, Brock Nelson, and Josh Bailey. These guys have been on fire offensively of late. The problem is on the other side of the ice in terms of matchups here is – the, the first line, as long as Leo Komarov's on that first line, and that's not, I don't know that they have a better option, but with Leo Komarov on the top line, I have to give the first line edge to the Penguins. When you have Jake Gensel, a 20-goal scorer, Brian Rust, a goal scorer, despite Paul wanting to hate on him uh, on Tuesday, <laughs> centered by, you know, still, I would argue, still the best player in the game in Sidney Crosby, um, certainly the best two-way player in the game. I think uh, a Selkie trophy should be coming at some point here. I'll get off my high horse with that. But if Anders Lee is on this top line, I think you've got a, a first line that's evenly matched up. I still give the Islanders maybe a slight edge, be only because Jason Zucker has really kind of struggled to fit here with Pittsburgh and, and hasn't produced super well. Um, but you're still talking about Evgeny Malkin. I think he's the better center, obviously, um, in, in that group. And then Kasperi Kapanen has really fit well. Him and Malkin play great together. And his speed, I think, is just unmatched, uh, with the exception of maybe Pittsburgh's Brandon Tanev on, on the fourth line. What tips the scales overall for me, though, is the third line. When you can roll out Jeff Carter, Jared McCann, and look, again, Paul, I know you're not sold on Freddie Gaudreau on the right side, but I'll just say a, a third line that's Jared McCann, Jeff Carter, and a body, whoever it is, uh, as your third line, I think that is in, incredibly po- impossible to match up. You 
literally could put that group on almost any other team and they might challenge for being a second line on that group. So I really, I, I just think the third line is not going to hold up. You know, I've talked about Jean Gabriel Peugeot all season and, and what he's done. And I, I think he's had a good year. Kyle Palmieri has been a bit of a bust. And then you've got Oliver Wallstrom who's had a decent season, but relatively untested. I don't think you can match up with the Penguins third line. And that's why for me, the forward scales tip in favor of the Penguins uh, on this group. Paul, uh, I know you, you're, you've been hating on the pens, so what do you think? You're probably all, all Islanders for the forwards, huh? Well, if you, uh, if you had to guess which team had the most forwards with double digits and goals, you might be wrong because the, the Islanders have seven guys that reach double figures in goal scoring. The, fly, the Penguins, I mean, Jeff Carter, you can call it an asterisk. He had an outstanding nine goals in 14 games for them. But they only had five guys reach double figures on the season in goal scoring. So I'll, I'll slow your roll there a little bit. But uh, in, in all seriousness, though, the, the question for me from the outer standpoint is what do they do to try and limit the top two centers there? I don't know if you can with the, the players that they will trot forward. But I'm looking at the depth chart for Islanders when I say that. And the top two guys among their offense are not known for much work on the defensive side of the puck. That's Barzal and Nelson. So do they try and outscore them? with an all-out offensive attack, or do they kind of overplay Casey Zizekas, who's normally a fourth-line center? And, and I already talked about how much I love the fourth line here. I wonder if they really try to amp up the ice time here of the fourth line unit and, and try and put them out against Malkin and, and, and Crosby a little bit more than you might have expected. Because, again, I don't think John gabriel Peugeot is there for his defensive side of the puck. So that's the question that I have from the New York Islanders standpoint, is what's the matchup game for them against the top two centers on the Penguins? And I think this could be a coming-out party, speaking of the Penguins, for a guy like uh, the former Maple Leaf there uh, on the on the forward ranks. And I'm talking about Kasperi Kapanen, of course. He had a decent season, but it was marred by injury. And I think... This could be a real time for him to shine if if the Islanders do try and stress one opposing line. I think it's the Crosby line that they're going to try and corral. That leaves Malkin and Kapanen and Zucker, which is a very capable uh, offensive line. I could be a first line for a number of teams, AJ. It's that good. I'm not going to undersell your club in terms of the offensive depth here at all. And and so that's the question for me is maybe Kapanen is unleashed along with Zucker and Malkin in that second line. And it could be a line that if you're looking at Pittsburgh depth and in a, in a draft situation, you look to get two at least two of these guys. And if you can't, can you get all three of them? That might uh, serve you well in terms of the playoff pools. Uh, is something I'll throw that way. On the defensive side of the puck, AJ, for me in Pittsburgh, it begins with Chris Letang uh, and, a, and a pack of uh, youngsters, Cody Ceci, a defensive defenseman, Dumoulin, Dumoulin, a defensive defenseman as well. The offensive support for Letang comes in Marino and Pedersen. I just don't know how much time they're going to play uh, relative to some of the other top defensemen in the league. But if again, if you're looking for Pittsburgh to go on a long series run, I wouldn't mind picking any of these three guys, maybe with one of my, well, certainly Latang is going to go early, but one of the latter picks, you, you wouldn't go too far wrong if you think Pittsburgh's going to go far. They're going to get some offense from Peterson and Marino. On the Islander side of the puck, it's a bit of a different story there in terms of the, the offensive depth. It kind of begins and ends with Nick Letty, doesn't it? The Adam, Adam Pellick and Ryan Pollock, more defensive specialists in a shutdown role. Andy Green and, and Noah Dobson, not known for their offense either. So really, your, your pickings in terms of offensive capabilities are limited to almost four players in some in these two uh, depth charts. 
And in terms of uh, which one is better than the other one, well, I'm going to say that the defensive structure of the Islanders is predicated on this defense. So maybe looking at it defensively, I'm going to give the Islanders a bit of an edge. But offensively, Pittsburgh does get the advantage on the defensive ratings for me. How do you see it? I see it exactly the way the way you do. Uh, Chris Letang, obviously, the, the in a class of his own. The one guy you, you didn't mention here, Paul, is Mike Matheson, who uh, had uh, – you know, 16 points on the, on the year, five goals. Um, you know, yeah, he doesn't see much in the way of, of, of power play time, but um, he, he would actually be my choice behind Latang, And I'd probably take Letty next um, because he, uh, you know, because he gets first power play minutes with, with them. Mike Matheson would actually be my third pick in terms of offensively minded guys in this matchup. So, um, you know, all signs point to him being back and ready after taking a puck uh, uh, to the face. Might have to wear a cage, which could, you know, limit uh, some vision there. So that that could be a concern, obviously, um, if that ends up being the case. But overall, uh, I, I think uh, I think I agree. If you're looking defensively minded, uh, the Islanders probably have the better group. But if you're looking offensively minded and specifically for our listeners that are going to be in pools or playing DFS, I think you look to the penguin side of the ice here between the nets, um, you know, kind of a, a interesting pairing here. All signs uh, indicate Tristan Jari will be healthy and available, had a decent season. You know, his, his wins, 25 wins uh, put him fourth on the win list here. Now his save percentage significantly lower than some other guys at the top of this list. You're talking you know, Vasilevsky, Grubauer, Flurry, all in that, you know, 0.92 uh, range. Jari all the way down to 0.909. On the flip side, you know, Varlamov didn't get as many wins, had just 19 in, in 35 games played. Save percentage significantly better up in that top range at 0.929. But what tips the scales for me, obviously, is the fact that Varlamov uh, was tied with Philip Grubauer for shutouts this season with seven of them. So certainly this is a guy that is capable of stealing a game uh, for you standing on his head and, and just shutting down the other team. And, you know, even with that defense in, in front of him, I think overall I give the edge to the Islanders. Varlamov also uh, reportedly dealing uh, with a bit of an injury here, and that would be a huge problem. Now he didn't skate yesterday, but is expected to skate today. So that is something to absolutely watch. I, I would admittedly have some concerns that the first time my netminder is getting on the ice is the day before uh, game one of the playoffs. It starts tomorrow at, at noon Eastern. So you're talking about like 24 hours before a game is the first time he's skating because of this injury. But as long as he's on the ice, I give the edge to the Islanders. If for some reason Varlamov can't go in game one, then it's a complete favorite switch to the Penguins. Ilya Sorokin is not in a class with, with Tristan Jari or Simeon Varlamov by any stretch of the imagination here. Now, AJ, I, I guess you're looking at a two-headed monster in terms of the, the goalie split in Pittsburgh. I don't think one guy's going to go all the way unless you tell me I'm, I'm out to lunch. I'm thinking you're going to see both of these guys. If You're out uh, to lunch, Paul. It could, Absolutely. You, you think it's going to be a, a Jari all the way then? I think it's going to be Jari all the way. You look mm-hmm. at the, the numbers on the year. He, he played, uh, like I said, he played 39 games uh, this season, you know, coming up. I, I think that's like sixth in the league. Yeah, mm-hmm. sixth overall in the league in terms of games played. They're going to use it. If he, I should caveat that. If he has some bad games, they might put in the Smith 
But unless he drops off, I, I think the plan is probably for him to play all of the games in the playoffs here. Yeah, yeah I, I'm kind of teasing you in that regard. I do think Jari is the, the clear number one here, but I just wonder how much of a leash does he get because they have a viable number two. Casey Smith's number, number is nothing to sneeze at in the regular season. You can't say that on the Islanders' side. Sorokin did come into the league with a lot of headlines, but he didn't uh, – he didn't uh, come close to what Barlamov did, uh, in, and I think the Islanders clearly will run with Barley as long as, as they can go in this postseason. AJ, we're looking next at the matchup between Boston and Washington, and on the regular season, this was... Uh, uh, did, did the listeners just assume that we're both picking the Penguins here, or should, should we uh, you're make right. picks here? You're right. I know you're anxious to get that in. I'm sorry. I passed that over. Let's review the special teams while we're at it, too. The Penguins, for their part, uh, power play was successful in 20, uh, 23.7% of their opportunities. This, the penalty killing was successful 77% of the time. That gets you over the 100 mark, so you're happy about that. But the Islanders are right there with your, your guys. The penalty killing was one of the best in the league, and that's something that could be a real key factor in this series, 83.7%. The power play, though, very weak on the, on the Islanders' uh, side of the equation. Predictably, as, as we went through the offenses, uh, you, you give uh, Pittsburgh the, the edge because of the, the nature of the top two guys they have at center there, among others. I'm going to assume that you're going to say this is quick. Are you calling for a sweep or are you going to give these guys a game? No, I'm not calling for a sweep and only because the Penguins have had some nightmarish series in games within the confines of the Nassau Coliseum. Um, I think they can do it in five. Uh, The three home games, they'll steal one on the road and and that'll be it. Um, But it's certainly possible that this goes all the way to seven and and home ice is a deciding factor because, as I said, historically the Pittsburgh Penguins do not play well on Long Island. Well, and uh, I'm going to say it is going to be a longer series than you might predict. I think it's going to go six games, but I do think the Penguins just have a little bit too much offense uh, for the Islanders to contain, given the structure of their offense uh, and the way it lines up against them. I think that's the key. Uh, the defense is going to be have to be a real shutdown focus for the Islanders, for them to have any kind of a chance here. And I do give them a chance to win a couple of games, but your Penguins will emerge, in my opinion, as well. Washington and Boston, this, this figures to me to be the tightest contest in this uh, division. And uh, I think the Bruins, while they did win the season series, five wins, one loss, and two went to extra time. Uh, So if you're looking at it from Washington's point of view, they won three of the five games, too. Uh, Special teams, let's jump to that first. Washington, really, this is a story of penalty killing, it seems. Both teams have really good special teams uh, overall. The PK... 84% 84% for Washington, 86% for Boston, two of the very best in the league. And also offensively, the power plays were two of the best in the league as well. The Washington Capitals, 24.8%. The Bruins, 21.9%. Of course, that's led by the, the perfection in line. And that's where we'll begin the analysis, AJ. In terms of the Boston depth chart, it's clear that their fortunes are going to ride significantly on whether or not that top unit, Marchand Bergeron, I did say his name. See that? <laughs> I got to put a dollar in the jar. Bergeron and Pasternak. 
they they had an outstanding year, as you might have predicted. But it's the second line, the emergence of a credible second line here that gives me pause for concern for the Capitals because Taylor Hall has been outstanding since forming a partnership with David Krejci. You and I did kind of forecast this as a a real good possibility for Hall uh, finally getting to a a real uh, playmaking center who can feed him the puck and he put it in the net with with great regularity. And Craig Smith was a guy they touted as a top six forward at the beginning of the season, finally fitting into that role on a consistent basis and I think his numbers will rise as long as he gets to play with Krejci and Hall then everything else falls into place in terms of the depth Charlie Coyle could be a very interesting piece here too if if Krejci falters or Smith falters I could see him sliding into a top six role here beyond that though there's a significant drop off I know people are saying oh Jake DeBrus has been a strong playoff performer in the past for this team, but he spent a significant part of this season in the in the press box and in the doghouse for the club. Trent Frederick is a guy who's more built for for playoff success. The youngster did have a good start with the club, but then faded in terms of regular consistent production, and that afforded Nick Ritchie a guy to get top six minutes here before Hall showed up on the scene, and he's a little more insurance on the, that side of the puck as well. In terms of Washington's situation, AJ, it's a little murkier because of the number of injuries that this team had all season long, and uh, I'm a little bit concerned, uh, quite frankly, with some of the injuries and other situations that have emerged for this team. Evgeny Kuznetsov has been uh, struggling at the latter part of the season, and that caused him to actually lose some minutes in in the top six role. Lars Elder moved up in class from time to time. TJ Oshie had a bit of an emotional finish to his season with the loss of his father, but it didn't diminish his offensive contributions, and I think he could be a real key part of this offense. Uh, Ovechkin, his health has been challenged in the latter part of the season too, but a partnership with Backstrom is still in place, and, and they added a really nice piece in Anthony Mantha. So a lot of good offensive pieces there on the Washington side of the puck as well. But I just think that they had too many uh, injury concerns down the stretch. And I I do think Boston gets the edge primarily because I don't think there's anybody out there that can equal the perfection line, as they're called, but they solidified their depth offensively. How do you see it on the forward side? Well, I'm actually going to look at the, the potential depth for Washington to give them like the smallest of edge. And I say potential because it 100% depends on Kuznetsov and Oshie being available. Because without those guys, uh, you're talking about a third line right now that looks like Daniel Sprong, Michael Raffle, and Daniel Carr. Uh, not exactly the, the, the best third line to be trotting out there. That's probably more of a fourth line. Um, and I think Nick Ritchie, Sean Corrali, and Charlie Coyle could certainly take advantage of those guys or, or Jake Dabrowski or Trent Frederick, whoever might move in on that left side of the ice. So for me, uh, I love the depth. If all the, if all hands are on board, you know, they would probably, you know, they might move Wilson back up to the top line. Then you've got Manta and Oshie on your second and third lines on the right wing. Backstrom Kuznetsov Eller as your, your depth there. Yeah, the left side of the ice might be a little weak after Alex Ovechkin, obviously. But for me, if Kuznetsov and Oshie can play, the edge goes to them. On the blue line, I think the edge has to go uh, to Washington. Uh, you know, they have John Carlson. That, enough said and done. Charlie McAvoy has certainly stepped up this year for Boston and taking over as, as being the, you know, the top guy there. Put together another 30-point campaign. Um you know, and that's that's three of his four seasons have been 
Uh, he's reached the 30 point mark. The one he didn't, he was at 28. So it's not like he was really far off that. Um, but you look for them. I, I like the addition of Matt, Mike Riley. Um, but the third pairing here of Jeremy Lawson and Kevin Miller or Jacob Zorbel, if he's healthy or not, I, I really question Miller hasn't been participating at, at optional skates. They've basically been resting him for games. That's a red flag to me. On the flip side, Carlson pairs with Orlov. Justin Schultz can be an offensive piece with Brendan Dillon. And, oh, by the way, Michael Kempney is now considered day-to-day heading in to these playoff series, and he could maybe replace Nick Jensen uh, on the third pairing. So then you would have Zdeno Chara and Michael Kempney as your third pairing. Like, yeah, you've got a guy who's a little long in the tooth and a guy who hasn't played in a while, but that's definitely a better third pairing than anything Boston will throw out there. So for me, I think – uh, defense is probably the biggest edge uh, for for Washington when you consider that their third pairing potentially would be a second, maybe even a first on some teams in the league. Uh, that's how I see the blue line. Paul, how about you? Yeah, I agree with your call there. And I've, I want to highlight Justin Schultz. He had a really nice season when you consider 27 points in 46 games. If you're looking for to sneak a defenseman into your lineup later in drafts, this guy could be a guy that is overlooked, particularly by the those teams that don't, those pulleys that don't think Washington will advance. Even a case could be made for Dmitry Orlov in that regard as well. So if you're stacking caps, you can go deep on their defensive side of the puck. I don't think you can do that on the on the Boston side beyond Charlie McAvoy and maybe Matt Grizzlick. There's not too much in the way of offense coming from that blue line in terms of the depth charts there. So uh, prepare yourself accordingly in that matchup. In the Nets, uh, I don't think there's too many surprises in store. For the Boston side, it's going to be Tuka Rask leading leading off. And but if he falters or gets hurt, do you go with a rookie Jeremy Swayman or Yaro Halak, the veteran who's kind of given way to the rookie to get him a few starts this season? And Halak himself had some concerns that kept him out of the lineup as well. On the Washington side, Vitek Vanasek has forced his way into the discussion uh, of the goalie. Goalie starts. Ilya Samsonov had some disciplinary issues with the club, and that's really a big concern for me because the disparity in goal shouldn't have been shouldn't be this wide but it is because of of uh, let's say some irresponsible decisions by Samsonov and the uh, unproven nature of Vanisek I think it's a huge edge for Boston I do think it's an edge for Boston I I absolutely agree with that part of your assessment Uh, the one thing I would say is I don't know that even if Samsonov were to play, that he would be the guy for game one. I think Vanasek, you know, 30, uh, 37 games on the year, 21, 10, and four, um, a, a decent .908 save percentage that's slightly better than, than Ilya Samsonov's and, you know, played significantly more games, racked up, you know, more wins. So I, I think, I think Vanasek probably would start here either way. Um, for for Washington, if if Samsonov is uh, activated off those COVID protocols, AJ, it's time for our calls. And looking at looking at your pick, I think we have a bit of a difference of opinion here. Tell me why you think Washington's going to come out on top. Well, I do. You know, I think this will be a coin toss. I I, I view this as a seven game series, no matter what happens. Um, and and it's a lot of if if then here for me if Kuznetsov. Oshie and even Michael Kempney all play, then Washington will win in seven games uh, is, is what I'm looking at here. I think there's just a slight edge in forward depth. The defense is a big win. And I, I, I think Vanisak can do enough 
Um, I, I still think, as you said, Rask is the best netminder on either side of, of this matchup and will force this to go to seven games and could get them to win in, in a game seven. But I'm going to give the slight edge here to Washington. And I'm going to go to the other side of the equation. I don't think the Caps have anything to, to slow down that number one line of the Bruins, and I think they're going to be a decisive factor in this series, no question about it in my mind. And even insulated by a second strong scoring line, the Bruins did answer that question. And so I think that solidifies the things up front. We talked about the big edge and goal for Boston as well. So, uh, and uh, let's call the dif- defense even maybe a slight win from wa- for Washington, uh, in my opinion, and I think you would agree. So, uh, on the whole, I think it's going to be a long series too, but I do think the Bruins come out on top and, uh, and uh, throw some. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed havoc into this this division as the interlopers who basically interfered with your metropolitan division and hope to continue (laughs) that trend going forward with that we'll take a bit of a break to uh, give a nod to our sponsors and uh, we'll be back to take a look at the remaining four series you're listening to podcast with statsman and aj All right, we're back to podcast with Statsman and AJ, and it's time to break down the series that I'm going to be paying attention to. I can't believe it's been 42 years since the Leafs and Canadians faced each other in the postseason. In fact, the last Toronto Maple Leaf playoff win against Montreal was way back in 1967, May the 2nd, the last time the Leafs won the Stanley Cup. They were swept twice in the late 70s by Montreal, and it's been crickets ever since. So uh, looking at the season series, the Leafs did win it rather decisively, partner. Seven wins for the Toronto, three wins for Montreal. A couple of those games did go to overtime, so we'll just simplify it by saying the Leafs won seven overall, Canadians won three. The forward matchup, I I have to think, is decisively in Toronto's favor. Could be their biggest edge in in this matchup. Uh, The Rocket Richard Trophy winner, interesting, the Montreal Canadiens superstar uh, 
trophy named after him and the Leaf guy won it. So that's got a sting for the Montrealers. <laughs> First time the Leafs have had a guy lead the league in scoring. Austin Matthews has 41 and counting it with one more game to play tonight. And finally got to play a full season with Mitch Marner and the results were lights out. Sensational performance by both of these guys finishing in the top 10 scorers. And it's the wingers on, on these line, this line and the, the second line that could be the uh, the bonanza for the poolies out there. You want to know who's playing with who? It'll be Zach Hyman lining up on the top line. So he could be a real strong depth play in terms of setting up your, your pools and looking for value down the line. Anybody who rides shotgun with Marner and Matthews should get a look, and that'll be Hyman, who had an outstanding year. Uh, when healthy, he was dogged by an injury late in the season that kind of limited his numbers a little bit but also he's dynamic in in uh, late game situations he's always out on the ice and uh, so if you get a couple of cheap empty net goals too that can enhance his numbers the guy on the left wing on the number two line also bears watching that's Nick Felino. acquired late in the season he had a, a mitt full of assists didn't Ball to the twine yet offensively, but he's not there to score a ton of goals. He's there to help Tavares and Nylander get a little space on the ice and uh, play kind of the uh, support role just like Hyman does on that top unit. So that's a six-pack that I would put up almost against any other group in the league. The third line is going to be an interesting look too. Riley Nash, by all accounts, AJ, he's going to come out of uh, the infirmary getting his Leaf debut in the playoffs, and he's going to get that third-line role pushing Alex Kerfoot to the side, and it'll be Kerfoot and maybe Mikhaev lining up on that third unit. There'll be a checking line that'll drive opposing teams nuts, and I wouldn't hesitate to see these guys against top units for the other teams going forward. Uh, pardon the pun there with the forward and forward. And then, <laughs> and then could be the oldest line in the NHL's history at fourth-line minutes that you can't sleep on. And Joe Thornton, Jason Spezza, Wayne Simmons, all these guys probably will face is about 10 to 12 minutes a night but they they are special players still and particularly Spezza in terms of his production per minute on ice one of the tops on the club and he had a very very strong season and I really hope they sign him back up on the Montreal side of the puck their hopes uh, are on the top unit there featuring Nick Suzuki he's been a top scorer for this team all season long and now getting a shot with Cole Caulfield could be an interesting look if he gets top six minutes here but I think their their offense is predicated on the return of Brendan Gallagher and probably he fits in there on the top line ahead of Caulfield but uh, don't be surprised to see Caulfield in the second second line role uh, as well there Josh Anderson for me really struggled in the second half of the season AJ he's going to be a guy that could be a difference maker in the series in the matchups against the Leafs he was a physical force earlier on in the series but just like his overall second half production he was MIA for for me and he needs to change that Uh, another key offensive piece is Tyler Toffoli had a breakout offensive campaign loving life in Montreal according to an article that he penned for uh, a major daily yesterday that I read and uh, he's a guy that while born in Scarborough a suburb of Toronto he now dons the Canadians colors and is proud to wear them and he could be a difference maker a guy that Montreal's success offensively could be pinned upon Am I uh, missing bl- people here? Jonathan Drouin, I don't know if he's going to play, and that's a tough blow because he's, a, he's an offensive-minded player that could be uh, a factor if he gets his head on straight, but he's had a tough year uh, dealing with life in Montreal and the pressures that come with that for a French-Canadian player, which is uh, a, a big burden. We've seen it in the past. I give the Leafs a big edge offensively, AJ. I don't know if you can disagree with that. Well, I'll start real quick and just give a quick shout-out to Jason Spezza, like, 30 points this year 
in a fourth line role playing, you know, about 11 minutes a night uh, is a really decent year. Let's not forget, this is a guy who has topped 90 points twice in his career, uh, has hit 80 an additional two times. Like, this is an elite, elite player who has just converted his game to be more of a, you know, a niche guy, for, for lack of a better term, uh, on a, a competitive playoff team now late in his career. I, I think it's a great indication of what somebody can do if they're, one, willing to check their ego at the door, and two, willing to put in the work. You know, most of those years were spent in Ottawa. So, of course, uh, Spezza does not have uh, a Stanley Cup ring to his name. And so that's obviously why he's sticking around in Toronto and, and putting out in the work here. Look, in terms of the, the rest of the four compliment, if you give Montreal all of their injured uh, away guys, so you give them back Philip Deneau and Brandon Gallagher, who might play in the postseason here, Josh Anderson, who just picked up an injury. Jonathan Druin, who's been given a a leave of absence. You give them all those guys in the lineup, and you're right, Paul. They just don't match up with Toronto. Toronto's just too deep, too scoring uh, heavy in all three of their lines. As you said, you know, having Riley Nash come in uh, to that third line really stabilizes that. I, I actually am a big Alex Kerfoot fan, but I would take Riley Nash over Alex Kerfoot any day of the week. Um, and yeah, I just think there's no matching up with the, the four pack of lines here that Toronto can put up for, for Montreal on the blue line. I I think it's maybe a little bit closer for Montreal. If we want to play this same, uh, all hands on deck, uh, game here, if Shea Weber is healthy enough, uh, to, to be their power play quarterback, Jeff Petrie has, uh, you know, really, come into his own offensively the last couple of seasons and, and had another really good year. Um, you know, you talk about a guy that when he was with Edmonton, like struggled to crack the 20 point mark and now has reached the 40 point mark in each of the last four seasons. So um, I, I actually like the offensive contributions that the Montreal side of this matchup can produce in those two guys, obviously Weber being available is, is a significant factor here. Um, so I do give a bit of an edge, uh, to, uh, to the blue line in Montreal, but I just don't know that it overcomes, uh, the, the, the forward advantage here, Paul, you might see it a little bit differently. I'm sure you're going to talk for hours about Morgan Riley and Jake Muzzin here. Uh, so I'll give you the floor. Well, Morgan Riley didn't come up with the offensive season that I thought he would overall, but his game was pretty steady, AJ. And along with that four-pack that you mentioned, they have Jake Muzzin, who, uh, for me, one of the steadiest guys in the league on both sides of the puck. He came on with a rush offensively to finish with nice totals uh, in the scoring department as well. So can't be sold short. If you're thinking the Leafs are going on a long run, he could be a guy that you draft late in your drafts. Morgan Riley should go a lot sooner. Guys that bring stability to that top four won't be among your draft picks, but should be meriting consideration for a long playoff run uh, to get some points along the way. Justin Hall and TJ Brody, uh, that four-pack, they, they combined for a plus 75 rating on the season and that's something that I couldn't say about a Maple Leaf four pack on defense in the last 30 years so that's how good they've been depth players will come in the form of Rasmus Sandin with some offensive upside Travis Dermott maybe a little bit less but Sandin could be a guy who links up with the power play and could be uh, a guy that you take on a flyer uh, with a late round pick 
if you get a chance to do that, uh, there could be some surprising value there. Partner. On the Montreal side, you did mention that the two guys that carry the mail are the two veterans of the blue line. Shea Weber, for me, a bit of an injury concern, and it was seen still wearing a, ri- a brace on his wrist. I don't know if he plays with that all the time, but uh, but uh, certainly he's got the injury mark on, on his description right now on the Rotowire website. That's a bit of a concern. Petrie started out great offensively, AJ, but his production waned in the second half. Could be because they overplayed him a lot, and uh, they were they were hoping for more of a step from Romanov in terms of his development. We didn't see it offensively, so I don't know if you want to overrate him. Uh, don't be very very wary about the offensive capabilities capabilities that he brings to the table because we haven't really seen too much in that vein. In the Nets, AJ, there's some question marks in the Montreal side of things. Not so much in Toronto. Uh, it's going to be Jake Allen's net to lose. He's had an outstanding year. 17-2-2 was the record. Save percentage and uh, and goals against average were among the league leaders in the league for his uh, time on ice and uh, a really nice uh, breakout campaign for him. A real good feel-good story. Uh, the ultimate teammate. You got to see his post-game interviews. This guy's Mr. Oh shucks. It wasn't me. It was the team every night out. And uh, I just love the guy's attitude. And I wonder if he can uh, deal with the big stage. That's the question mark on that side of the equation. And on the Montreal side is how healthy is Kerry Price dealing with a concussion issue? He hasn't been in a game for several weeks now and his debut is going to come in the playoffs allegedly but do they go with him right out of the shoot jake allen has been a workhorse and and performed heroically for a montreal team uh, dragging them into the postseason uh, if he didn't play as well as he did they would be on the outside looking in so how do you break down the net mining situation here well i think you have to go carry price there's there's no no argument in my mind about that yeah allen you know uh, 11 12 and 5 is, is fine Point nine oh seven save percentage fine. Carry Price's numbers not great. Twelve seven and five himself. Point nine oh one save percentage there. But at the end of the day, it's it's Carry Price. He's one of the best netminders uh, in the league, and and I think you have to put him in uh, for for winning a game. On the other side, you know, yeah, uh, you know, Freddie Anderson's been out for a while too here, Paul, and and I just you know maybe maybe they should be uh, considering. Uh, rolling out Jack Campbell for game one Price and, uh, or, or Freddie Anderson here at least got a game uh, in the regular season but it wasn't a good one gave up four goals on 28 shots to the Ottawa Senators um, so you know at least it has to be in the back of their mind I, I would be shocked if Campbell started game one but you at least have to be thinking about it and this might be one of the shortest leashes that Freddie Anderson has had in a long time at least uh, from where I'm sitting uh, I don't think there's any doubt that Campbell's going to start, AJ. Don't, don't even think about that. Campbell's going to be the guy until he falters, and uh, he's there on merit. So I've got full confidence in him, so does the team. And uh, the pick that I make in this series is no surprise. But what about you? Uh, how do you see it breaking down? Well, I think Toronto just is so much better in, in most of the aspects of the game. You know, I, what I see happening in Toronto will take games one and two at home. Uh, Carey Price will stand on his head in either game three or game four, win that one, and then Toronto will close it out back home in five. That's kind of where I see this series going. Paul? 
Well, they have a uh, the advantage here is a, it definitely in Toronto's quarter. Even from the point of view of scheduling, uh, this is one of two series where there can be back to back games on consecutive nights in Montreal. Very hard for a team to win both of those games. So that's a that's a tough blow for the Canadians, I think, in terms of scheduling. They take a bit, a bit of a hit there because I think the teams will split, split in Montreal, and I do think the Leafs will emerge from that with a. 3-1 series lead, then they'll split a couple more games and the Leafs will take this one in six. And boy, if they do pull it off, I don't care if it's seven, eight, whatever games, if the Leafs beat Montreal in the playoff series, I will be party. <laughs> yeah, and you're going to be maligned to no end on the flip side of this from myself and hopefully the rest of our listeners on Twitter. <laughs> My Mets man twenty two. If Montreal happens to pull off this upset, I will leave. I will leave Twitter if that's the case. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the next North Division matchup: Edmonton and Winnipeg. The Oilers won this series going away seven to two overall. And uh, look at the the Oilers predicate their success on the dynamic one two punch. It's no secret that they have those two superstars at center in Dreisaitl and McDavid. They finally got it right in the second half of the season, splitting these guys up to really dominate the ice at the center position night in, night out with that matchup. And and on the flip side, we talked at length about the fact that I think Winnipeg's mismanaged their roster, quite frankly, not straightening out their center depth and giving them a, a three-headed look with Shifley, Stasley, and Pierre-Luc Dubois. I think that would have been the way for them to go. I don't like the way that Dubois has really struggled all season long in the Winnipeg co- colors, and I was expecting much more from him. He really regressed in terms of his overall offensive game, and that was something that I didn't see coming here. Uh, come, consider, in 40 games played, only 20 points, a minus 5 on the season, so really not delivering the goods. We thought that that line A Dubois trade would turn out much differently than it did. Both guys really faltering in their new new locales. Uh, certainly, Winnipeg's offense is, is centered around Mark Shifley, and Blake Wheeler, Wheeler had some injury woes that cost him six games, seven games on the schedule. Came on, came on with a rush, so by all accounts looks pretty solid. But that minus 19 that he wears on the regular season, a bit of a shocker for me too, AJ. And and if he goes, if they, that line goes head to head against Edmonton, you can expect a lot of scoring going on, and maybe most of it from the Edmonton side. We didn't go deep enough on. I didn't go deep on the Edmonton depth chart but there's value plays all over the place here in terms of the top six Yessi Pugliarvi has been a guy who's finally emerged as an offensive threat and really partnered very well with McDavid could be a really good uh, sneaky play in terms of uh, drafting uh, your playoff pools if you think Edmonton's going to go far same can be said for Dominic Cahoon these guys can be had later in your draft and could return very significant totals just by being McDavid's caddy same could be said on a second line with Leon Dreisaitl I have a lot of faith in in Ryan Nugent Hopkins as a capable sidekick for him a little less cons- a little less though in Alex Chason you could see some shuffling on the right wing there maybe Kyler Yamamoto gets in there he was rested a little bit uh, with an undisclosed injury late in the season and I think he's a guy that you look at in the top six minutes Zach Cassian could be a factor too if the series gets physical he's a guy that I could see getting top six minutes if he could get himself healthy there's some concern about his situation too dealing with a lower body hurt there AJ I've talked at length about the forward situations what have you to add there well so when I look at the the top the top lines for each of these clubs if I take all three players as a cumulative whole, 
I actually think I like Winnipeg slightly better. And yes, Connor McDavid is the the best player in the world. There's no arguing. He's where he's at um, there. I just, I like Kyle Connor significantly more than Dominic Cahoon. Obviously Blake Wheeler is better than Jesse Pugliarby, even with the more, the better season he had. So if you look at it that way on a whole, I think I like Winnipeg's first line just slightly better. Having said that, there's just so much that Winnipeg, that Edmonton rather can do from there on out in terms of depth, in terms of uh, switching things around. Look, if they need a goal, if Edmonton's trailing in a game, you throw Drysaddle to the wing on the top line. That's that's an unstoppable top line. If you want to go matchup problems and maybe give yourself a better third line, they could move Ryan Nugent Hopkins down to the third line center instead of having him on the wing with Drysaddle. Like they've got so much flexibility in those two guys kind of being interchangeable there. Um, they, they could flip, they could move Ryan Nugent Hopkins up to the first line uh, just to kind of give a different look there. There's just so much that Edmonton can, can do that. And we, we talked about Edmonton can do all these good things with their lineup. Winnipeg is doing all the wrong things with their lineup. Now they might get Nikolai Ehlers back for the postseason, And that would be a huge boost to their forward complement here. Uh, tremendous boost, but just not enough to match up with Edmonton here. Defensively, uh, I think, you know, it's, it's maybe pretty even in the sense that, you know, for Edmonton, you've got a guy in, in Tyson Berry who can offer uh, some some very solid, you know, top line va- or top option, bear, uh, top player value here. 48 points in 55 games, 23 of that coming with the man advantage and nearly half. Then you also even have Darnell nurse, 16 goals uh, from the blue line, which is uh, pretty remarkable. Uh, And only one of those on the power play. So you're talking about a guy that's producing more five on five on the other side, Winnipeg can roll out um, some decent producers of their own in Neil Pionk. He had 32 points on the year. Josh Morrissey, 21 but as you can see, those numbers are significantly less than the other guys. Yes, of course, Barry gets the benefit of playing uh, with with Connor McDavid, Nugent Hopkins, and, and Drysaddle on that first power play unit. But I think uh, that's just the nature of the beast. I, I think overall, I like the depth, too, uh, a little bit better in Edmonton. They've got shutdown guys and Dimitri Kulov, Adam Larson, some young up-and-comers in Ethan Bear and Caleb Jones. You know, Winnipeg is, gets a little bit thin outside of, uh, you know, I like their first line in Morrissey and DeMello. Pionk pairs up okay with Derek Forbert, but then from there, you know, it's kind of a mismatch of the, the third pairing. So um, there there are some pieces on, on the Jets. If you think the Jets can pull off the upset, definitely going to want to look at guys like Pionk and Morrissey for, for your pools in terms of long term. But I just don't see him getting past. And so for me, I'm staying away from that group uh, in terms of pools. Yeah, I think Tyson Berry might be the first defenseman that comes off the board in playoff pools this year, and Darnell Nurse might not be far behind him, AJ, and uh, that's to your point. Pionk, his production uh, slowed in the second half of the season a little bit. 32 points, though he's still a linchpin on that power play and uh, merits some consideration there uh, just for that fact alone. If you're concerned about special teams' impact, he's going to be a central piece of it. In the net mining situation, Mike Smith has been writing a fantastic story for Edmonton. I don't know if he can stand up to the rigors of, of 
the condensed nature of, a, of the playoff schedule. And because they also have a back-to-back in this series, you're probably going to see his backup Koskinen get a game too in that set, something to bear in mind. That uh, Connor Pallybuck looks like he might have righted himself with his last start pitching a shutout. I think he's getting a rest tonight, AJ, by all indications. So he'll go into the playoffs on a high note. And he's a guy that can win a series by himself against most opponents. But I think this might be a real challenge for him. And it leads us into our discussion of the special teams in this set. As expected, the Edmonton offense, among the more dynamic power plays in the league, 28.1% success. But the PK has been very good, too, at 82.2. So that's, that's a special teams number of over 110% in total. And on the flip side, Winnipeg, very good on the PK as well for 80% success and a very good power play as well. So special teams should be a factor in this set. I think uh, AJ and I are in agreement, though, in terms of the winner of this series. AJ, why don't you tip our hand? Well, I'll just start by uh, saying for our DFS listeners that are interested in playing the single game tonight, Connor Hellybuck is actually going to play tonight in the season finale. Um, has uh, reportedly wants the game uh, and, and wants to be able to play. But to your point, Paul, you look, he hit a real bad April. It was not good. But since May, has two shutouts in three games uh, and does appear to be trending in the right direction. Now, what is he going to face in terms of an offense from Toronto? Who knows? I mean, they could they could pull a Bruins and sit half the team here. Um, so it, it's interesting to watch. But he is going to start tonight. Um I think I like the fact that Hollywood Bucks kind of looking better. Um, how he plays tonight could also factor into my decision. But I think at the end of the day, uh, the other the other side, Edmonton, is just too good. So I've got the Oilers in five in this one. Yeah, I think despite the fact that Winnipeg can produce a lot of scoring in terms of spreading it out, we didn't mention Kyle Connor. He's up there with about almost 50 points on the season two nothing to sneeze at in terms of the variety of offensive pieces that they can bring to the table but I think for me that the edge is uh, all in Edmonton's favor largely on the basis of a big four I'll call them two superb centers and two very high scoring defensemen with a lot of support beside them and they did have a decisive advantage in the season series that is a telltale sign for me that Edmonton should win this series and they should win it rather handily up next, we're looking at Colorado and St. Louis, partner, and I know you have uh, an interest in this series. You've been a big fan of Colorado's for a long time, too, and if, if I have read the tea leaves correctly, uh, a lot of it has to do with Nate McKinnon, and uh, he's the, a bit of a question mark as this, the, the playoffs do start in this, in this set, too. Uh, the Avs won the series five games to three overall, and... Uh, I want you to take us through the goaltending, uh, the offensive depth, rather, the forward depth of both clubs, and then I'll rebut your comments. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, by all accounts, McKinnon is expected to be ready for the postseason. Now, um, we obviously talked last week about the Brendan Sod injury and the impact that that has, and, and it does certainly hurt their depth. You know, I, I used uh, Colorado's first line with Tyson Yost, uh, in, in some DFS contests last night. And obviously that paid off well, Tyson Yost, uh, pairing up really well with two goals, uh, seven shots on net, um, you know, got some power play ice time, but I don't expect much of that to carry forward once Nathan McKinnon is back as he will no doubt take that top spot. I think, uh, overall, 
that first line is just too good. I, I think the depth on these two organizations is pretty evenly matched. Um, maybe even a, a slight edge if you want to get towards the bottom of this lineup that would go uh, towards towards the Blues here. But overall, uh, this top line is just too just too good. And obviously, the biggest thing for the Blues is whether or not they have Vladimir Tarasenko. Um, you know that that's a big question mark for them. Jaden Schwartz. Uh, you know, was rested on Thursday. So I don't think there's any concerns there about him being back available. Uh, but right now you're looking, you know, Schwartz probably returns, uh, you know, to the second line with Shen. And then you've got, you know, Robert Thomas anchoring the second line, even uh, Ivan Barbashev and David Perron on the first line with Ryan O'Reilly. Like I, I just don't, I read those things to myself and I just don't like the look of it. The combinations just seem off to me. I really think they need Tarasenko to have any hope here. But even if they do, I think Colorado's first line is just too uh, unmatched here. They've got guys down the rest of the lineup that can produce and, you know, when, when needed. And Andre Burakovsky, Jonas Donskoy, uh, obviously Tyson Yost had a big night last night. So um, there, there's pieces there for Colorado to bolster the first group. But it, they're just so indomitable in terms of, of that. I, this may be the best first line in hockey. I have. I think the fans in Boston might ha- take you to task on that, but I, I kind of uh, see the the reasoning for your call, and it's not as big a disparity, in my opinion, as well. Uh, Vladimir Tarasenko, for his part, on St. Louis, let's begin with that. The coaching staff does feel like they did hold him out for, for issues relating to injury, but they expect him to suit up early on in this series. So while he might not be available in game one, you can expect to see a, a lot of the big tank there among top six forwards. I think he ranks no worse than second on the right wing depth chart, so govern yourself accordingly there. Mike Hoffman, a bit of a disappointing season for me in St. Louis, AJ, concerning for me that he didn't fit in with the uh, distributors that, that are, were at his disposal in O'Reilly and Bozak pretty good uh, dishers of the puck and he didn't find his way around to get the offensive totals that I thought that he would in St. Louis colors here so while he did get 36 points I did see him getting a little bit more than that in that regard St. Louis's offense is kind of a balanced structure David Perron has been a strong playoff performer in the past and led the team with 58 points on the season O'Reilly at center had an outstanding second half to to finish at almost a point per game of 54 points with a plus 26 Typically for him in the running for the Selkie Award, I think he should be in consideration for that once again. And maybe even for the Lady Bing with only 18 penalty minutes for him. Braden Shen is a guy that moved around from center to wing. I think if they keep put him at center, that gives him a nice one-two look at the middle position. And I think it's something that could give them a bit of a hope. Uh, against a high-octane offense on the other side in Colorado. Maybe a bit of an advantage when you consider they have a stronger second pivot in, in that case than maybe Kadri or Yost might be on the flip side. For Colorado, it's the health of Nate McKinnon. By all in, uh, indications, not going to be an issue. He will suit up in Game 1, and that brings that top line intact into the postseason. And the second line for Ka- Ka- Colorado, nothing to sneeze at by any means. I don't want to diminish the look that they put out there with Nazem Kadri, Donskoy, and Burakovsky. Burakovsky had a nice breakout campaign for his part, and Donskoy kind of giving what I expected in terms of his points per game on the season. A credible depth forward piece, 31 points on the year and a plus 14. The plus 14 indicative indicative of the dominance of that second line all season long because uh, all three centers, uh, all three forwards, 
did fare well in that regard. Mel Cadre took a bit of a, a dive with a minus seven toward the latter part of the season, had a long scoring strum, slump that impacted his totals. But I like the look of that second line going into this postseason. And I look for more disciplined play from Kadri. When I think back to the last two playoff series in Toronto, he didn't finish them. He got suspended in key terms. I think you're going to see a more a mature version of Kadri, and I think that's a really good look for Colorado heading into the postseason. But uh, I think that uh, I don't think there's a big disparity in terms of the forward depth charts here when you consider that uh, St. Louis has more, maybe more capable scorers among their top nine than Colorado, but it's that star power that might give the nod to the Avs. AJ, how do you see the blue lines shaking out? Well, I think that, you know, the big thing here is, is the offensive production for me is what differentiates these two groups. You look at the top three point producers uh, for for um, for the Blues on on the blue line are Tory Krug at 32, Justin Falk at 25, and Vince Dunn at 20. Dunn has been dealing with an injury, so that even creates some more uh, concern and havoc there. Their totals come up 30 points less than the top three uh, defensive point producers for Colorado. Kill McCarr leading the way with 44, Sam Garrard with 32, and Devin Taves with 31. So I just think there's no real matchup here in terms of, of that side of the ice. The, the, the Colorado Avalanche just have the better-looking better uh, you know, defensive group in terms of the offensive side of the puck. You also add in the injuries for guys like Colton Pareko, Vince Dunn, even a Jake Wallman who might have otherwise factored into the bottom six here. Those are big, big concerns for me uh, that, that they're going, you know, they've got a guy in Steve Santini who spent the entire year in the minors uh, until they had some injury concerns, basically played three games this year at the NHL level for them, uh, potentially going to, you know, be forced into, into a game if, if some of these other guys can't play. So it's no question in my mind that Colorado leads the way uh, defensively. And back in Colorado, if you're doing so in your pool preparation, Kale McCarr had those 44 points in 44 games. There's no defenseman that scored at a point per game pace other than him in the entire league, I don't think, AJ. And when you're ranking defensemen in scoring, I think he has to be right up there with Edmund in terms of the prognosticators for, for postseason defense scoring. But in terms of value that you might find at the tail end of your draft, Gerard and Taves certainly merit consideration topping the 30-point mark. Gerard did his in only 48 games played as well. St. Louis, if you back those guys, you're going to be looking at Tory Krug as, as the big point guy. But Justin Falk, with that booming shot, did have seven goals on the year, so he could be an attraction as well. I wouldn't go any lower than that. Vince Dunn, 20 points, and the injury concerns, to me, rule him out as a consideration other than maybe a last-pick flyer if you're thinking St. Louis can pull off a couple of upsets and emerge from this division. In terms of the special, uh, the goalie situation, AJ, the Colorado Colorado Avalanche, maybe a one-trick pony here, but it's a pretty good pony. And Philip Grubauer had an outstanding year with a one, 1.95 goals against. In contention, I would say, for Vez in the discussion, there are a whole host of guys that are going to challenge him, as you pointed out last week. Uh, 92.2 save percentage for him as well. On the St. Louis side, it's going to be my neighbor, jo- Jordan Bennington, with a 265 goals against average and 991 
some percent save percentage. Those are off his career norms, uh, AJ, and uh, they give me the the indication that that Grubar should be the guy that gets gives the nod to the the Avalanche. And uh, if it comes down to second string goalies, both teams are in trouble. Billy Huso with a three twenty one goals against average, and question marks galore on the uh, Avalanche side. So this could be a series where we see the same goalie night in night out for both sides. Oh, absolutely. I don't think we're going to see anybody else uh, go in. And yeah, for, for Grubauer, I, I absolutely think he'll get a Vesna nomination here. Could have a decent chance of winning it. You know, if you look at goalies who played at least 20 games this year, he comes in second in goals against average at point at 1.95 um, behind a- Alex uh, Nedeljkovic, who had 1.90 and played 23 games. Grubauer plays 40 games and still puts up a similar number like that. I talked about the fact that he was tied with Simeon Barlamov for the league lead um, in shutouts at seven. And I really think, uh, in my mind, he might be the leader in terms of of the Vesna. I know we talk a lot about uh, Andre Vasilevsky, but his his numbers are slightly better than Vasilevsky, only one fewer win. Um, and so for, for me, if I had a vote, I think I'd take Grubauer. And I think that's just another tip in Colorado's cap towards uh, cleaning house in this series. Yeah, and a large part of that advantage also comes in the special teams when they're killing off 83% of their power play, penalty killing situations at St. Louis only at 77.8. That's a big disparity when you consider Colorado's power play is successful at 22.7% of the time. That could be a really nice matchup for the Avs when they go on the man advantage. The Blues, nothing to sneeze at uh, with their power play at 23.2. I'm surprised their number's higher than than, uh, Colorado with the man advantage, but uh, that could be a factor in this series we have a difference of opinion here in terms of how long it's going to go but i think we're on the same side in terms of the winner aj what are your what are you saying here well i'm saying that paul you spent too much time with your neighbor jordan bennington to, <laughs> to think that to look at this series objectively look colorado's got the better first line i think overall better forwards they've got better defense they definitely got better net mining this year. You know, Bennington has, has been subpar. I, I would be shocked if he himself wouldn't admit that his season was, was not good compared to uh, his expectations in, in past years. So for me, Colorado shows up, takes out the brooms, and gets this one over and done in four games. And I'm not going to sell the playoff pedigree of the Blues as short as you are, AJ, and that's why I think it's going to go a lot longer. I think it's going to go seven games, uh, more hotly contested than you call for sure, but I do give Colorado the advantage in that set. I don't know the way Grubauer has played this season. If there's anybody that can beat this team in four games in a seven-game series, I'll say that up front. And the final series we're going to look at is one that is of great interest to uh, several of our best followers, more guys with the largest followings. And uh, I'll be careful with some of the words that I use here, I guess, as a result. But Vegas and Minnesota, the season series, in fact, was won by Minnesota. Five games to three, AJ, when you look at it on the whole. And that was a surprise to me when I dove into those numbers. So one thing that had me causing a little bit of concern uh, in in the preparation for analyzing this set too. What do you think about the forward matchups in this grouping between these two clubs? Well, I think you have to give, um, you know, you have to look at the experience of this, these two sides and I, and that's not everything. I think it's, I think it's an important X factor though. I mean, you're talking about guys in March assault, 
Um, Pacioretty, Stone, Smith, like all these guys have been here before. I've, I've lambasted the depth at center for the Golden Knights all season long. I still don't think Chandler Stevenson is a top, you know, a, a top line forward uh, or a top line center by any stretch of the imagination. I think the point totals uh, reflect that as well. You know, he not a bad season, but 35 points from a guy that's expected to be your first line center. That's just certainly not good enough. Stone Pacioretty and Marchessault, for their part, all reached the 40 mark. Um, and so I think the, you know, on the flip side, you have guys in, in Minnesota. You look at their top scores. If you take Matt's Zuccarella out of it, because he came in, uh, I believe it was four, or third rather in, in team scoring here. You look at the other guys at the top, Kirill Kaprasov, 51 points, Kevin Fiala, 40, the aforementioned Zuccarello, 35, followed by Jordan Greenway at 32. I believe these guys have combined for 31 postseason games in Kaprasov, Fiala, and Greenway. Obviously, Zuccarello has a little bit more experience there, but that's a concern to me compared to a team like Vegas who has veterans. So it's, it's a bit of an X factor. I know it's not a numbers thing, and we try to do – a lot more number focus as, as much as we can, but the eye test has to pass here too. I think for me, that experience level is what's going to take Vegas slightly past Minnesota when it comes uh, to the forward groups and possibly beyond. Vegas was one of the top scoring teams in hockey, AJ, by, with 190 goals overall. It will surprise many of our listeners that they only finished with 10 more goals than Minnesota on the season. In fact, in the last month of the season, Minnesota did outscore the Knights, and so they finished the season with a rush offensively, and it's the variety that they have up front that gives me pause for concern. If you're a Vegas fan, they have no fewer than seven guys that hit the double digits mark, uh, led by outstanding rookie Kirill Kaprasov, who should be a lock for the Rookie of the Year award after a 51-point season. Kevin Fiala has been a strong scorer for this team for the last couple of years, been a real good DFS play whenever I put him in the lineup. Uh, he's been he's been a real good producer for me on a consistent basis, and he scored consistently with 40 points on the year. The concern that I have with him, though, is a minus two on on the record. Matt Zuccarello, when healthy, I've said it many many times, has been a real factor in terms of playmaking from the wing position. So don't sell him short if you're just looking at his 11 goals. He did pile up 24 assists and all of that in only 42 games played. Jordan Greenway, uh, depth player with some some uh, capabilities offensively too if you're thinking of an upset here you're going to stack the wild and uh, he'll be a guy that you're considering on the depth chart as well Joel, er- Joel Erickson is a guy who emerged with a nice season 19 goals offensively for his part as well I know you're a big fan of Nick Felino and the way he plays the game AJ both ends of the ice solid this year with 26 points for him Marcus Felino is a guy that emerged though as a top six guy of note in Minnesota's lineup. Only 39 games played and 26 points for him. So some solid play value uh, lower in the depth chart. But let's face it, Vegas is a team that, that is going to be the, the darling of, of this matchup. I don't think there's any doubt. And so you're going to look at stacking your lineup in drafts as much as you can with a lot of their high-end offense. And maybe you get a guy like a Jonathan Marchessault as a depth player in your roster. He had 44 points in 55 games played. And I think he'll go in about the fourth or fifth round in the standard 12 
player uh, format in the postseason. Ditto for Willie Carlson and Chandler Stevenson. While you malign him at center, AJ, he was very good in DFS play, underpriced much of the season, and 35 points in the middle of the ice. I think he's just scratching the surface there of what he can be if he's kept in that position with another year or two of experience. As long as he gets to play with the big boys up front, I think he's a consideration in drafts uh, of any format going forward. Max Pacioretty's status as a, a healthy forward is in question but by all accounts he looks like he'll be ready to go in the game one it's just a little bit of concern for me in terms of the number of times there's been uh, the slightest injury concern around him he missed eight games on the regular season still played at better than a point per game pace so I think definitely a guy that might even be drafted in uh, first round maybe late second round uh, at the at the worst uh, in terms of the offense that he brings to the table, Alex Tuck is a guy that you should sleep on too as a late round pick in your pools. If you get if you get the chance to pick him and you think Minnesota's going to go far, as many people do, he should be a guy that you're trying to highlight and target later in your drafts. Thirty three points and fifty five games played. He's moved up and down the roster and could play top six minutes if somebody falters in that six pack. That's great insurance for for the Knights going forward. How do you, how about the back end, AJ? The blue lines. Yeah, I think again, I have to give uh, the edge to to the Golden Knights here, and I think partially, obviously, Alex Petrangelo um, being you know their their offensive uh, you know their offensive piece. Now, having said that, his numbers this year nowhere near what he was doing in St. Louis. You're talking you know previous seasons, fifty two, forty one, fifty four, forty eight. Just 23 this year was limited to just 41 games. So I guess if you carried that over to an 82 game season, you're sitting at 46 there for him. So, um, you know, there, there is something to be said for that aspect of it, but plenty of guys have been able to produce this year with less games. And so I, I definitely think Petrangelo, maybe not quite uh, as good as, as the golden Knights were hoping they were getting out of him. In fact, the fact, in fact, he comes in third overall on the team behind Shea Theodore and Alec Martinez. Now that is also a concern that Alec Martinez uh, dealing with an injury here. Uh, you know, how long he'll be out of the lineup. There hasn't really been a lot of information there. He missed the last two. So if he's not available, that certainly hurts their depth options here. But on the other side for Minnesota, uh, you know, they're, they rested Spurgeon and Brodeen. I don't think there's any concerns there. Sutter and Dumba, are solid uh, on their own right. And so I think as an overall four-pack, um, maybe slightly in favor. Again, we talked in a previous, if you're looking at like defensively-minded guys, solid guys, I think maybe Minnesota gets the edge. But the offensive firepower that the Golden Knights Blue Liners can put out there is unmatched. Spurgeon, for his part, was the leader on Minnesota with just 25 points uh, compared to you know what the, the Knights guys did. Yeah, if you're looking to pick some defensemen uh, later in your draft and maybe even they play only one series, you're hoping that Spurgeon, Brodine, Dumba, and Sutter continue to do what they did all season long and be a factor in the offense. But boy, oh boy, that Vegas side, uh, don't sell Shea Theodore short at all. I think he rates uh, strong contender status to uh, being among the top five defensemen drafted in the pools that I see uh, out there. A plus 28 on the season just begins to tell the story. 42 points on the year, uh, leading this group uh, offensively. You mentioned Alex Martinez, a surprise contributor to the tune of 32 points. Does he keep it up in the postseason? I think he has a solid chance to do so behind this team. 
also, another plus-minus st- statistic of note, they have eight guys that have a plus-minus of at least plus-19 on the season to show you how dominant they were during the regular season in posting that 40-14-2 record overall, AJ. I do think it's a clear edge for Vegas at the forward position and defense. Uh, I think they, they get a slight edge, too, in terms of offensive capabilities and what has shown up all season long. In the Nets, I think the third check mark will go in their corner, why don't you wax poetic about their projected starter in Vegas? Well, I, I think this might be, you kind of alluded to the fact that maybe we would see split starts here uh, in in net mining in, in some situations. And if there is a team that's going to do it, I absolutely think it's the Golden Knights. They've been dividing the workload from Marc-Andre Fleury and Robin Leonard throughout the year, um, except for when, when Leonard was out with an injury. But for, for my money, you know, Flurry a 1.98 goals against average, uh, 0.928 save percentage, 26 wins, 10 losses, six shutouts. Like, I, I think he has to be your guy. Robin Leonard, again, numbers not terrible, um, but they're not as good. Only one shutout, just 13 wins. Again, he only played in 19 games, so that's certainly a factor here as well. But uh, I, I think you have to roll with Flurry, but they do have Leonard waiting in the wings and can utilize him if need be. On the flip side, I think Capo Kaganen will be a solid netminder for them for the future, but I think what you saw uh, just last night is indicative of of where he's at right now. The team was up 3-0. He gives up seven goals uh, to lose the game to to the Blues there at the end. I don't see any way that he's going to supplant Kevin Talbot as the number one, and I expect Talbot to take uh, pretty much every game the the rest of the way for them. As I indicated, uh, the plus-minus stats and and the fact that Las Vegas is capable offensively and defensively, I want to make a point about the pools in the playoffs in season-long formats rather than daily games. Shutouts are a big factor, and Fleury did rack up six of them in regular season. I think there's more to come in the postseason. And, and so take a look at that when you're ranking goalies and how far you think their teams are going to go in the postseason. I think you can make a case that Fleury could be the first goalie picked in a lot of different pools, and it's be, a large part of it is because of the sparkling goals against, but also the, the propensity for them to rack up shutouts is, is something you shouldn't discount as well. So a big edge in the nets for Vegas. I think it's a clear advantage for them in the series and uh, maybe not as clear as uh, maybe I'm not as clear as you are on it, but uh, I think we bought, go, both got Vegas winning in this set. AJ, am I right? Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to go six games with for Vegas here to, to close it out. I don't think um, I don't think Minnesota can quite force a, a seventh game, but I certainly wouldn't be surprised at it. Uh, I was a little bit surprised when the early lines came out and, and how heavily favored Vegas was in this matchup. I don't think it'll be that much of a one-sided contest, um, but I do have the Golden Knights in six. And I'm going to go in seven, largely on the fact that Minnesota did close the season with a rush, and they almost matched up offensively. When I when I looked at the totals offensively, I thought they they come, came on with a rush, and they're looking very good on that end of the ice. But I think Vegas's defensive structure and goaltending advantages are going to be too much to overcome. I think it's going to be a six-game series as well, AJ. And largely on the fact that Vegas also has a special teams edge over most teams they'll face on the PK. 86.6% tops in the league. Uh, when I look at it, the power play, a little more suspect in that regard, 178 I was surprised when I saw those figures. Minnesota, for their part, the PK, 
percent and penalty power play 17.6 so i thought both power play units surprisingly low in terms of productivity when i look at it overall but i don't think there's any doubt that vegas is going to emerge from this series as the victor we will close it out at this point and remind our listeners that we've we're departing a little bit from our every tuesday format now the next time you'll see us and hear us is on the eve of round two we urge you to enjoy the upcoming sets in the eight series and we hope that we've given you some good indications of who to target in your pools and uh, that's where we'll wind it up we thank you for listening to podcast with statsman and aj rotowire signature hockey podcast please remember to send your comments or questions on twitter follow me paul bruno at statsman 22 you can follow aj at aj scholes 24 as always we invite you to listen into podcasts to get our tips to stay out of the competition in your fantasy hockey planning and research so long everybody and good luck in your playoff pools Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.